there's not really anything like walking in the forest and having a spider monkey throw a branch at you. So, you know. <laughs> podcast for introverts extroverts and everybody in between today we have with us a good friend of mine she is joining us all the way from costa rica and for a podcast where we talk to young people doing cool stuff she has the perfect name welcome to the show helen young (laughs) thanks (laughs) uh now just for our listeners, just so you know, this is the first time we're recording one of these over Skype because uh, we're not in the same country, but just uh, letting you all know that so in case the audio isn't as good as normal. Also, it's raining in Costa Rica, so that might have something to do with it as well. Um, but Helen is here because she is in Costa Rica working with GVI, which is the Global Vision International, and she's working with the sea turtles over there, which is just an incredibly cool thing. And I really enjoy all the amazing photos of animals that I get to see come up on Facebook every now and then. Uh, Helen, can you tell us a bit about GVI and what it is that they do? Yeah, so GVI is a company that, well, their mission value is to create a global network of people inspired by their passion to make a difference. So essentially, uh, we are a company that has hubs all over the world, um, each with a different focus. Some are animal conservation, just like mine here in uh, Costa Rica. Others work on a more community development kind of area. Others work uh, marine-based and work, uh, you know, with coral restoration and things like that. So essentially, we're just a company that tries to put up a hub where we're needed to try to make a difference, and we allow volunteers and interns from all over the world to come and help us with our work and our projects and participate in all the amazing stuff that we do. That's awesome. And you started as a volunteer, right? Yeah, so I was a volunteer at Hullover, which is the name of the hub um, here in Costa Rica. Um, In 2017, I was there for eight weeks. And I essentially just absolutely fell in love with the place after being there for about five minutes. Yeah. So after that, I figured out pretty quickly that this was not only the place I wanted to work, but the area I wanted to work in. So while I was there, I just threw myself into everything, tried to do as much as I possibly can, uh, tried to make myself known to the staff there, <laughs> basically. And then essentially, you know, did my eight weeks, loved every single second, never got bored. And then after my time there, um, did some extra traveling around and things like that. But once that settled down, I literally just emailed them and said, hi, I want to work for you. And because <laughs> they remembered me and I'd made such an impression, apparently, when I was with them, they said yes. So That's awesome. Yeah. And did you choose the turtle one specifically or was it chosen for you? Not quite. So how Holova typically works is that there are four projects that are run at the base. So you have the Forest Biodiversity Project, Canal Birds Project, the uh, Sea Turtle Project and the Jaguar Project. So I actually started out as unpaid staff, um, just which basically means I help out on everything. I wasn't the leader of a project. Um, And while I was doing that, I think I got trained in turtles because they need the extra help. They needed the extra help at the time. Um, so basically I think in doing that, while I was 
I showed skills in all of the projects. That was the one that I showed the real affinity for. And it was clear yeah. that it was where my passion lied and where also my skill set worked best for. Um, but it also depends on the job opening. So, for example, after six months, I then was lucky enough in 2019 to enter a paid position. Yeah. Um, and at the time, that was just titled science officer. Um, so I actually ran two projects. I ran the canal bird project and the turtle project. Wow. Um, because they already had a Jaguar project leader lined up um, because she'd been the assistant to the project the year before. So it made sense when that project leader le left for her to take over. And then the biodiversity project leader position was still open, basically. Was, sorry, still filled. She was still there um, yeah. year after year. So that project stayed there. But she moved up to also be assistant to be the assistant base manager at the time. So she could only run one project. So basically, as the next remaining paid staff member, <laughs> um, basically they were the two projects left. And considering they were basically my favorite anyway, it worked out pretty well for me. Yeah. Um, and I was lucky this year in because I was moving up to be assistant program manager, but that meant that I could only do one project. Um, so essentially I got to pick between the two. Um, and because Turtles is my favorite, that's kind of where I went. It made the most sense because it was the one that, you know, I was the most passionate about anyway. And we also had a really awesome intern who'd been with us as volunteer staff for nine months and he showed a real affinity for birds. So it made sense for him to um, yeah. come in and take over the bird project. So, yeah. yeah. And what is it that you do with the Turtles? Like what is your like general day's work? So... Luckily for me at Hellover, every day is different. I don't just work on the turtle project, even though I run the projects. You take part in all the projects there. But specifically for turtles, um, there are a number of surveys that we do daily. We do what's called a nest check and track survey, and we also do a night walk. So nest check and track survey starts at 6 a.m., and essentially you walk our entire survey area of the beach, which is five kilometers long, um, and you record you record every single turtle track along that beach from the night before. So essentially we're recording the number of turtles that came up on the beach the previous night. Yeah. And also we check on the nests that we have marked on night walk. So what that means. So while we're on night walk, essentially we're working with adult live uh, female nest, nesting females. So basically they're coming up onto the beach to lay their nest. And what we do is that we, um, if we find her in the correct phase of her, nesting cycle there's eight of them and the green turtles that we work with are, are crazy to put it <laughs> in a, just a term. they kind of they dig many many holes and fluff about in the sand and they don't just go from one to eight sometimes they'll come out of the sea find a nice spot dig a hole be like nah that's not good enough yeah. move some dig another hole or else dig a hole again go back to hole number one and continue digging there you never know um <laughs> So if we find them at the right point when they've stopped faffing about, um, basically um, we count how many eggs that they lay and mark the location of that nest on the beach so we can find it later. And then we, um, we tag them for identification. So this means that we can track that turtle's progress over time. We can look at how she grows, look at how successful her nests are, things like that. Um, it also, if we keep track of the number that we tag, it means that we can also keep track of how many I guess, um, helps us get a idea of the population as well. Um, yeah. And then we measure them. So we take the, the minimum length of their shell and the maximum length of their shell because um, it's not uh, singularly, it's not symmetrical, it's asymmetrical, yeah. so it can be different. 
Um, and then we do a whole body check as well, which is where we just assess, you know, her health. If she's got any cuts or nooks on her, things like that, which they all do. I found a turtle once that she was missing the entire lower half of her back shell. Oh, my God. And her feet were ripped to shreds. It looked like a shark or something had taken a bite out of her. She oh was alive. God. She was missing happily. She was I also saw a turtle. Sorry? Yeah, she's a fighter. She was a fighter. And then I also saw a turtle once that didn't have her entire right front flipper. So she was just going along the beach with her left one. Oh off my she went. She succeeded. I don't know how. But yeah. And I've seen without a rear flipper either. That was She pretty much had phantom limbs. She was trying to dig her egg chamber where they only use their back flippers. Would dig with one, throw some sand out, and then put her tiny back other back flipper, which basically didn't exist anymore, and was doing the same motion but was doing nothing, obviously, because she didn't have a flipper. Yeah. So you see all kinds of things, and it also helps us keep track of those ones as well and just see how our turtles are going over time. Maybe you see one one year and then three years later when she comes back, she's missing a flipper, and you're like, well, okay, something happened to you in the process. Yeah. So it's interesting yeah. for us to so they're the main things that we do. Um, and then also once our nests, so we leave our nests on the beach that we mark to, uh, you know, generate and basically incubate naturally. We don't move them. We leave them be. Everything's natural. And then once they hatch, which takes about two months, mm-hmm. um, we then excavate them, which basically means once all the babies are out, we dig the nest up and open all the eggs that didn't hatch to see why they didn't hatch. Yeah. So there could be heaps of different reasons. There could be that bacteria got in there and killed the eggs. It could be fungus. Maybe a crab decided it was going to eat it. Or um, ants do the same thing. They can break wow. into an egg and eat it. Yeah, they're a carnivorous ant here. They're not very nice. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> and they say Australia's got bad animals. <laughs> they're fire ants and they hurt. They bite me all the time. Um <laughs> And then also sometimes you see cool things when you open them. Like you might see an undeveloped embryo um, that might have some deformities. You might find Mm -hmm. twins. I found an albino before. I once found an albino turtle that was also bent in half and had an irregular scale pattern. So it was a whole range of deformities. I found one with two heads. Uh, Oh, my God. Yeah, not even kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Found one that had the skin over its brain hadn't formed, so its brain was exposed. Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of different things you can find these things happen. So it's always really interesting. Um, And that gives us an understanding of the hatching and emergence success rate of the nest on our beach, which is really important for helping to understand the health of the population. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, all of those measurements that you take and the data and everything that you take, what is the benefit of that? What is that going towards? So basically we give all of our uh, data set, we collect for the Sea Turtle Conservancy of Tortuguero and they are the running green turtle program in the entire world. So they've been here for 60 years and, yeah, long time, long time. They And it was started by... Um, Archie Carr, who's considered the um, basically the father of green turtle science. Well, not green turtle, sorry, just sea turtle science in general. He's mm. the first person that decided to study them properly. So it's really amazing that we um, are in a place where he where he began, basically. Um, so all of this data goes into their central database and allows us to have an understanding of the the health of the population, look at the trends to see if the population itself is increasing or decreasing. Mm-hmm. Um, also, we also record information such as how many nests we find that have been poached by humans. So it allows us to understand the impact poaching right. is having on turtle on the turtle population. Yeah. Uh, 
things like that, basically. And all of it leads to what the more we understand about sea turtles, the better we can help protect them. So yeah. um, the more we know, basically. It also means that we can use those data sets to, you know, formulate our own research. Like I wrote a, um, at the start of the year, I wrote a poster that was meant to go to the International Sea Turtle Symposium, uh, but that was cancelled because Not of happening? So, Why nope, would that be? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that was a shame, but it means, you know, we can do all kinds of things like that. And as I said, the more we know and understand about these turtles, the better. Also, because this beach is the second largest green turtle nesting site in the world, wow. so they can have... I think last year we had over 100,000 nests on the beach, which means we get around 23,000 female individual turtles every single year, roughly. It changes year to year, oh, but, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of them. So it's really important. The more we know about this, the better. Plus also in collecting this data, we um, the SEC writes a report that gets sent to the National Park um, Management and basically – by sending these reports, we prove to them why this area needs to remain protected because it is within a national park. Um, yeah. And if it was stopped being a national park, then there'd be more poaching, there wouldn't be as much protection, yeah. things like that. So, um, it, yeah, it's really important basically us being here. Plus, our presence on the beach deters poaching. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. There was an occasion when I was doing a morning nest check. So I was walking on the beach. It would have been like 7 a.m. probably because we start at 6 um, and then I didn't know about this at the time, just did it all, you know, walked all the way to the end, walked back, whatever, hunky-dory, everything was fine, nothing out of the norm. But then the rangers that patrol the beach um, told us the next day that apparently they'd been out on their boat, they saw a poacher boat that were harpooning adult uh, females, that were adult turtles, oh. sorry, that were mating out in the sea. But when they saw us on the beach, they stopped, freaked out and went and left. So wow. our presence alone just helps deter yeah. them. We're on the beach every day. So yeah, it protects right. our turtles from the poachers, basically, or helps yeah. to. Yeah. And, I mean, what is it like living in Costa Rica? You know, what, what are your sort of facilities like? And, you know, it's got to be different from back home. <laughs> yeah. Well, basically, uh, there is no glass windows or not really any doors either. Yeah. So basically we live in quite an open kind of environment. Um, and while we call it the staff house, it's more of a staff hut. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, um, you know, I have a bedroom which I share with another staff member who I've been sharing with for over a year. So we're pretty close. We're used to being each other's roommates. Yeah. Uh, but basically it's bunk bed setting. But luckily, they try not to force too many of us into the same room. So there's only two of us, so we get our own bunk beds each. Yeah. But you have to sleep through a mosquito net. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you get eaten to bits. Um, you, we don't have any – we only work on solar electricity. So that means that at night, sure, we have lights, but it also means that we don't have hot water. So cold showers for everyone. Oh, um, God. It also means that if it's been raining nonstop for a couple of days, which it does frequently in July, that yeah. means there's no power, which means you can't charge anything, which often means that, oh, no, I can't do any work today. So. Oh, wow. I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't get signal in my own house. Yeah. So if I no, I have to go to the beach or stand at the front gate getting eaten by mosquitoes to do that. Um, 
and you're not allowed to go to the beach after 5 p.m. or before 6 a.m. because of jaguars and yeah. turtles. So essentially what that means for time zones is that I have about a one-hour window where I can talk to people properly on the phone from Australia, yeah. and that's if they're up at 8 a.m. So doesn't always happen on a weekend. Most people are on their way to work. So it can be very difficult to kind of maintain communications. It's not mm-hmm. too bad. You know, you get used to it, but there is that. Um, we cook communally for each other. So uh, all the once a week you'll be on – basically I'm on duty where I can cook for upwards of 30 people. Not by myself, mind you. I have some help. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to do it myself. Uh, but it's completely vegetarian because we don't have a fridge, so we can't keep any meat because that would be a bad plan. Yeah. Um, yeah. So pretty much that's what it's like. It's very basic, quite remote. We're lucky in the staff house. We do have a flushing toilet, but there is not – that's the only one on site because it uses up too much water. Yeah. Um, we water tank that we pump water up to once a day, which then provides the pressure to allow water to come through the taps. So mm-hmm. when that runs out, that's the water for the day. You've got to use the well um, to pull it up, which can be a pain in the ass. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, you know, we burn all our toilet paper because it doesn't fit down the pipes. Um, yeah, so pretty basic lifestyle, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And you said you've got around 30 people on the base. Are they yeah. mostly staff, volunteers, locals? So basically we have... There are typically five paid staff and then we'll have two or three unpaid staff, depending on how many people we have, how many volunteers we have. Uh, I think the most I've ever had was nine staff and that was because we were overbooked and had like 26 volunteers, which was a hell of a lot of people. Um, So typically, like at the start of this year, we had six staff members. So there were uh, five of us that were paid and one that was unpaid, um, essentially. And then we we can fit... We can happily fit 24 volunteers on base, 26 if you're pushing it. Um, but roughly we sit around the 15 volunteer mark. That's mm-hmm. generally a good number for us to have. It fluctuates below and above that depending on, you know, the, the time of the year type thing. So, yeah, it really depends. Um, and they're often a mixture of volunteers and interns. You might get people that come because they only want to stay for a short period of time. Some stay for three months. It varies depending on what they're, I guess, what they want to get out of the project. Yeah. So what is it like, because you have volunteers and you, some of them are maybe only there for a few weeks or a few months. What is it like when you get new people and you have to train people again? Do they get training before they come there? What's that process like, you know, of having to retrain people every few months, basically? Well, we retrain people every two weeks. Wow. So Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We pick, we have a pickup of new volunteers every couple of weeks, um, and but basically that first week basically looks like Saturday day one they get their orientation in San Jose, the capital in the main city, um, and they which they go through some initial risk assessment and then they spend the whole day travelling to base because it takes pretty much the whole day to get there from the centre of the city because we're on the far Caribbean coast of Costa Rica, so um, on the east coast, yeah. Um, and basically that takes two buses and a boat to get there. So yeah. um, there are no roads where I live. It's, it's only accessible by boat because we're basically on a land island between the ocean and the canals. So wow. there's nothing else. Yeah, there's no cars or anything there. Um, so that takes a while. 
And then when they get there, we just, you know, settle them in. They have dinner. They're often pretty tired, go to bed, all that jazz. And then the next day, they have a complete risk assessment and base tour, you know, frighten them of all the, every single insignificant thing that could go wrong, even though it's probably not, but, you know, <laughs> like that. Um, like, for example, we have the, one of the risks in there is landslides, but we live on a very flat place. There are no hills nearby, so I don't really know why that's there. But, you know, just <laughs> in case, you know, you know, just in case some mud wants to fall down into a pond from, I don't know, somewhere. Yeah. Nowhere. I don't Nowhere. Know. Uh, so everything. And then they do first aid training. So we first aid train literally everyone who comes to base because we live two hours from the nearest hospital. So it's important to make sure everyone knows what to do in a crisis in case something goes wrong. Yeah. It's never happened, you know, better be safe than sorry. And then basically each day they get trained on a different project. So I personally don't have to train everyone on every project. I have done it before. Like I have trained someone in all the projects, so I know how all the trainings work. But basically you train people. If the project that you're the leader of, you do the training for, um, for that project. So I basically give the turtle training where I give them an introduction to turtles, a bit on their biology, and then we talk about, you know, how each survey works. Um, then that, that takes most of the morning, and then in the afternoon we go to the beach to do some practical work, like how to um, how to count the turtle tracks, how to identify the different species, um, how to uh, mark a nest on the beach, things like that. So, And all the other projects have something similar. So, for example, the Forest Biodiversity Project will have a training which takes you through all the target species, and then in the afternoon you go on a practice walk in the forest so you can practice scribing for their surveys. Because um, otherwise, if you just throw people into the field, they have no idea what's going on. So yeah. it's basically just give them a taste of everything, get them settled in, things like that. And then the week after, we kind of throw them in the deep end and say, here, off you go. And so, do you find that most people sort of settle into it and, and a, you know, just start going with the flow and are good with it? Do you get the occasional person who sort of maybe can't handle the yeah. environment? We definitely do. Most people come to a place like Kalova because they want to work with wildlife. Yeah. And um, the team in head office that deals with them initially in the booking process and stuff, they know what Holova's like. The main woman that we deal with, she's been there. So she came last year, which is great. So she knows how remote it is. She understands that. So it's also in all of their welcome documentation. If they read it, they don't always read it. And they come <laughs> here and they're like, oh, oh, what do you mean signal in my room? Yeah. I don't know. Read the book, mate. Like, oh, what do you mean there's no Wi-Fi? I'm sorry, but our Wi-Fi works off a small phone router, which we put in a plastic bag and put up a tower so it gets phone signal. I'm sorry that only the staff can use it for work. Yeah. Because it doesn't really work. Yeah. But, so you do get the occasional few. Um, but often they kind of, after a week or two, they adjust, fall into it. The wildlife in itself is stunning enough that, you know, everyone loves it. I've never met someone that's come and has hated it. Um, there's been a few that have come and after a few days realised that this is not the place for them and they've taken it upon themselves to leave early, which is always a good decision if they can't yeah. deal with it. It's going to be terrible for morale if they stay. And while it's sad that that happens, because I always want everyone to come and get the most out of the beautiful place that we live in, but it doesn't always happen. So, yeah. But most people really make the most of it and love it and fall in love with it really quickly. There's not really anything like walking in the forest and having a spider monkey throw a branch at you. So, you know. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, yeah. I mean, you know, everyone here during 
quarantine is all watching Netflix and everything. You guys don't have Wi-Fi, like you said. Like, what do you do in your downtime, you know? So, basically, I am the resident base uh, movie pirater. So, whenever I go to town, <laughs> the capital city, which has internet, I spend 95% of my time eating food and downloading TV. So, I have a two terabyte hard drive that is nearly full of TV shows and movies. So, that's how I spend my free time, basically. But also, on base itself, we play a lot of card games. Yeah, much, basically. I, I can imagine so it would be. Playing cards. There's a bunch of homemade board games. For example, I made, when I was a volunteer, me and another volunteer, Emily, we made Cluedo, jungle-themed Cluedo. Um, that's so brilliant. Good, that one's a good one. Yeah, so the weapons are things like a snake or a scorpion or a coconut, you know. That's the big industrial-sized wok we have in the kitchen, that's a pretty good weapon too. So, yeah, yeah things like that, basically. Or, you know, if it's during the day and we don't have a survey, uh, we'll go for a swim in the sea, play frisbee. There's a, We have a beach volleyball net we can set up if we want to. I mean, I have a Kindle, so I might just go lie in my hammock and read a book type thing. Yeah, really, you know, it's... It's good to not have the internet because it means we're all forced to actually talk to each other when we are yeah. around. Yeah. Luckily, at the moment, I'm s- staying in town at our Sea Turtle partners, at the Sea Turtle Conservancy, and they have better internet. Hence yeah. why I can actually talk to you today. Yes. Um, it would not be working. Um, yeah, when so I first it- messaged you, I was like, I don't know if you have internet and if you're going to see this in the <laughs> next few months, but maybe you will. Um, so... What work are you doing now that you're not down at Hellover? Like how has, you know, COVID has obviously stopped you from doing what you normally do. So what are you doing now? So basically COVID has caused all GBI hubs to close. So Mm -hmm. currently everyone that I worked with and that was volunteering with us in March has all gone home to their home countries. Um, And I'm the only person left essentially. Um, So base itself is closed. There's no one there except for um, our neighbours, the farmers who are looking after it because um, they live here, they're um, from Costa Rica, so they're yeah. hanging out. They're basically looking after the place, and I'm living at the Sea Turtle Conservancy. So luckily, because of my turtle skills, um, I asked, and because they trained me, so they know that I already know what I'm doing. So yeah. I essentially, I found out things were going to be changing, and I offered to stay here. I asked them if I could stay with them and um, support them in their work if I could stay here. So yeah. basically, at the I kind of have two jobs. I work for GVI still, but I get paid like a sixth of my salary because there's not much work to do. So I yeah. don't do that much. And then I'm also a research assistant for the STC. So we're still doing all the same turtle surveys that I would be doing at my normal base in Holova, but just up the other end of the beach, basically. Um, yeah. And the STC. So I still get to do all the turtle stuff, luckily. Um, we were a little bit uh, constrained for the past month in what we could do. Uh, because the national park um, not only closed the park, they originally closed the park completely to researchers. So there was about a week where we couldn't do anything. So we were just, I was just hanging out yeah. in the house, like, cool, I'm going to watch TV, um, yep. <laughs> like everyone else. Uh, but then luckily they got an exception because we need to be on the beach to protect the turtles from poaching, yeah. particularly in a time like this, because this town exists for tourism. So without, yeah. the, without the tourists here, um, there's no work for them, and th- that means that there's no money, which means there's going to be an increase in poaching uh, because they eat the turtles here, Yeah. Um, what they poach them for. Um, so there's going to be that not only to provide food for their families but also to sell it. 
particularly yeah. the egg and the um, also the turtle meat itself. The eggs is more common, but um, they hunt adult turtles as well for their meat, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to be on the beach. And they said that, okay, you can patrol, but you're not allowed to touch the turtles. So essentially what that means is that we were doing, we're still doing night walk, we're still out on the beach at night, but if we encounter a turtle, we can only mark her nest because when we count her eggs and mark where the nest is on the beach, we don't touch her because we don't want to disrupt the nesting process. We want her to lay her eggs and all that. And then once she's done that, normally that would be when we would tag her, measure her, all that jazz, because she's already done her purpose at the end of the day if she – is disturbed and goes back to the beach, we can cover her nest for her, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, kind of thing. But luckily that doesn't happen very often. But um and even if that does happen occasionally, it never deters her from laying her second nest because turtles can lay up to five nests a season. Green turtles anyway. Yeah. Uh so yeah, we've just kind of been marking nests and moving and relocating nests. Because the big thing at the moment is there's not that many turtles around because green season doesn't start until really July. There's mm-hmm. some arrival early but it doesn't start yet which means that the only turtles that are here at the moment are the leatherback turtles which are a vulnerable species and they're massive but there's not many of them and the hawksbill turtles which are critically endangered mm. and they lay shallow nests so they're really easy to find and really easy to poach so what we're doing actually is when we find a nest we're moving it so relocating it to a different place on the beach and hiding it and disguising it so they can't find it and we've been really successful in that so far. None of the nests that we have moved have currently been poached. And because they're now, all of them are at least a week old, that means they're safe uh, because they don't want old eggs. They want eggs that are, you know, fresh, Yeah. which is good. But luckily, as of next week, uh, things are going to be going completely back to normal. So as of June 1st, uh, research is allowed to resume in the park. So oh, we're allowed brilliant. to go back to normal and, well, get up close and personal with them turtles again, basically, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good to hear. Uh, and you said, like, you volunteered to to stay there. How often do you get to come home or, or go travel somewhere else? Um, well, in uh, pre-COVID land. Yes, um, sorry. <laughs> in pre-COVID land, every three months I have to ex- exit the country for my visa run. Uh, oh, because okay. in Costa Rica it is impossible basically, if you're a foreigner, to get a working visa or a permanent visa because they want all the jobs to go to their residents, obviously. Yeah. So they much – it's pretty damn hard to get, um, yeah, a visa for very long, but you get an automatic 90-day visa when you – tourist visa when you enter the country. So basically every three months I leave the country. Um, you can just go to Panama just across the border. There's a nice island chain there that's very nice to stay in. You yeah. can just relax. Um, but I typically take the opportunity to go to a country I haven't been to yet. Like I've been to Guatemala, Colombia, wow. um, went over to the UK. Um, yeah, I've been to quite a few places on my visa runs. And I get to take a couple of weeks at a time, which is really nice. Uh, however, Australia being Australia, um, I only really go home at Christmas. So we yeah. base closes over Christmas for three weeks. Um, so last year I took an extra two weeks off before base closed so I could go and uh, be home for a month instead of just three weeks, Yeah, uh, which was nice, basically. But, yeah, it's just once a year for me. Other people, luckily, most of our staff come from the UK. Um, they, A lot of them tend to go home every two, every three months because there are direct flights from Costa Rica to the UK. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so they do that. 
uh, not always, but um, yeah, which is nice for them, but unfortunately not the case for me. But in this current COVID land, uh, luckily Costa Rica has extended all tourist visas until August, so I'm pretty sick. Oh, that's good, yeah. Out here for the foreseeable future until I have to leave, basically. Yeah. And then I don't really know how that's going to go because who knows how these, you know, quarantines are going to work, basically. But pretty much what it means is if Costa Rica ever opens a travel bubble with some country, I will probably have to go there so I don't have to do two weeks of quarantine wherever I end up. So, yeah. We'll see. We'll see. And I mean, you've been there for a couple of years now. How long do you think you're going to stay there? Is this a long-term career goal for you? Is there somewhere where you where you want to take this further, the type of work that you're doing? Well, in terms of here itself, my original plan was to just stay until the end of this year and then next year move on to something else. Mm-hmm. I know I want to keep working with turtles, but I've pretty much um, – you know, progress as much as I can at this base. So being a system program manager is the highest I can go where I still run a project. So if I was program manager, I wouldn't be able to run the progr- the turtle program at the same time because it's too much work, Yeah. Um, which is not the program manager because it was offered to me, but I was like, mm, no, I want to run turtles. So oh, I'll turtles, be a system. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. um, so I want to move on and work with, uh, you know, another sea turtle company somewhere else. I haven't decided where. I don't really care where. Yeah. I just know that one of my current life aspirations is to work with every species of sea turtle. So there are seven. I've now worked with three. So um, I've started it off. But, yeah, I want to work with all of them at least once in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the plan was to come home, was to finish here at the end of this year. Plus, a place as remote as this, it's really difficult to work in this place for a really long, for a really extended period of time. If I had a stable internet connection and could, you know, do things like this, like Skype all the time, it yeah. wouldn't be as much of a problem. But at Halova, I just don't have the, like, a connection with everyone as much as I could if I had a stable internet, basically. Yeah. It's not a place where no one can visit me. So if ever I had friends and family who wanted to come to Costa Rica, I would have to take time off to go see them. It's not as if they could, you know, stay in the same town as me and I could go see yeah. them every time. I have to go somewhere else. So it doesn't really, it's, yeah, it's not quite the same. So it's a bit hard. Yeah. But also, you know, my best friend's getting married in April next year. So I need to go home for that at least. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, oh, I wanted to ask uh, about, you know, obviously you miss your friends and your family, but, do you miss other activities as well? Like we know each other through scouts. You've been doing scouts for 20 years and, and we did Melbourne gang show, which is uh, a musical production put on by guides and scouts as well. Are those things that you miss or are you sort of overwhelmed by how much you love the wildlife that you've forgotten about all this shit at home? <laughs> I, I, I can't say I miss gang show. I've been, I've done that for 10 years. So I, yeah. I don't really, I don't mind if I don't do that anymore. Um, but the scouting is definitely something I miss. I miss camping in the bush with my mates. I miss, you know, the scouting events that would happen all the time. I miss being a Joey leader, so mm-hmm. working with the younger kids as well. That, I did that for nine years or something. Um, so I miss doing that. Um, and then I miss simple things, really, like going to the gym. Yeah. There's no gym here. No. I miss things like that. I had a pretty good routine before I left and I was doing it with friends as well. 
So I miss, you know, doing that kind of thing. I really miss going out to eat food. Yeah. Going out, going out for dinner, going out for meals, all that kind of stuff. But, like, yeah, do I you miss just that. just sort of, whenever you go into town or go overseas, do you just sort of eat it up, like, get every... I eat so much food. I drink so much wine. <laughs> I eat pizza, like, every day. It is great. <laughs> Uh, and I wanted to ask as well, since you've been in Costa Rica, you've started doing beautiful wildlife photography, which is not something that I remember you doing much photography when you were back here. But, you, I mean, you're in the perfect place for wildlife photography. Yeah. Um, is that sort of a new passion that sort of started up because you were like, well, I'm here, they're here, let's take photos of them? Yeah, kind of. So I bought a camera a couple of years ago and I'd never really used it. Um, but part of it was with the intention, um, cause I knew I was going to come here and while, you know, it's really something I'd thought about, but I knew that I had always been awful at taking pictures of just general events. I never had any pictures of anything. The only pictures I had with my friends is when someone was like, Hey, let's take a selfie. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Like I never really thought about it. It's pretty bad at that kind of thing. Um, so I thought, you know, I want to capture the place that I'm in. But more particularly, more in particular, I more want to capture the wildlife. And um, basically, it takes a lot of patience. Like what? I might post a picture once every couple of weeks, basically. But I probably take, you know, upwards of 500 pictures during that time. Yeah. And only one of them is good enough for me to edit and put on the internet. Luckily, mm-hmm. I'd always I'd always liked photography. I did it a bit in high school, like when I did Year 12 Art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I spent my time doing photography for that with my dad's camera, which I enjoyed. It was fun. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't – it's something i never quite gotten into. Plus, I have no interest in t- taking pictures of people, and so I'd never really yeah. gotten into it that um, But, yeah, it was just something I started doing and slowly got the hang of, basically, um, which is something that takes a bit of practice. But, yeah, yeah basically, and I essentially just learned through trial and error. And, like, I'm slowly developing my skills because things like manual mode are so goddamn difficult, so many components. <laughs> I have no idea what this means. Like, the other day, I was taking pictures of a, a sloth and its baby up in a tree, which was so cute. Oh, um, and, and the sun came out and was shining right on them, and all, um, and all my pictures were too bright. Or I'd moved my camera and the light was all behind them and the sloths themselves were too dark. So I literally messaged someone who knew what they were doing and I was like, what's the thing that I need to do in order to make my the subject, like the middle of my picture, less dark? And he was like, exposure. And I was like, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, I change that. But it's something, it's so much to remember. Yeah. So Now, I yeah, will say, some- I, I do get very happy when I see you post pictures of sloths. Uh, <laughs> and this is for those who don't know me and Helen this is because I gave Helen the only successful nickname I've ever given somebody and it stuck for a really long time which was sloth which yeah. you are nothing like a sloth uh, but as far as I remember it was I had lost all the contacts in my phone and we were all out and you were going crazy about some meme about a sloth so when you yeah. put your name into my phone you put yourself down as sexy sloth sloth machine yeah I remember <laughs> yeah uh and it just stuck from there I just started calling you sloth because of that and it 
it stuck. We bought you a sloth onesie for your 21st. And yeah, it's it's the only time I've ever given someone a nickname and it's stuck. So it makes me very happy when you post pictures of sloths. <laughs> they are one of my favorite animals. And it's I'm lucky that they're pretty unique to this continent, but also that they're everywhere. Yeah. Um, they're quite frequent. Like there was one outside my balcony a couple of months ago. The one I was taking pictures of yesterday was on the same property that I live on just at the other end. And there were three of them hanging out together, the mum, baby, and another one. So there was just heaps of them there. Uh, there's one, there's a female sloth in the bushes uh, to the side of me that uh, want, that is trying to find a mate. I'm pretty sure she's in heat. And what that sounds like is basically a small child screaming. Kind of yeah. similar. Imagine, so I imagine most Australian people know that a koala grunts when that's happening. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like that, except screaming. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of sad. It's very weird. But every now and yeah. then you just hear this, hey, happening from the bush. And you're like, okay. Okay. Funny? <laughs> She's for now. So maybe she found a friend. But, yeah, yeah. they're very interesting animals. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sure you remember one time we were at the zoo. Uh, and, um, and we had there was a whole group of us we'd been around the whole zoo and we got to the end and I'm imagining it was probably you that went we haven't been to see the turtles we have to go and see the turtles uh, and when we got there the turtles were having an intimate moment yeah um, which you know is a, also a unique sound but I think the funniest yes, part I- of it was uh all the parents, like, you know, saw a group of, there were probably six or eight of us, saw a group of people standing around the turtle enclosure and so would, like, bring up their kids and be like, oh, look, don't look at the turtles! <laughs> yeah, I remember. That was very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, like, all of that, we, you know, we're all, like, between eight, 18 and 21 or something probably at that time and um we're all sending snapchats to our friends of the turtles and I remember a friend messaging us and being like I got snapchats from all of you and the turtles were in different places how long (laughs) did you stand there (laughs) watching the turtles we're like uh, probably too long definitely too long I would say it's embarrassing to us Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, Now, before we finish up, I wanted to ask you, so the show is called Loud and Seemingly Confident. Do you see yourself as a confident person? Are you an introvert, an extrovert? I would definitely say I'm an extrovert. I've always been a loud person. I've never been afraid to tell people my opinion. I'm often known amongst my friends as the blunt person. I'm never going to sugarcoat things. I can Um, vouch for that. I definitely think that, I guess, my confidence in putting myself forward was actually how I got this job in the first place because I asked for it. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, they didn't approach me. I messaged them and said, hi, I want to work here. And they said, okay, I remember you. You were good. You can come back, basically. Mm-hmm. And then I continued showing that passion and enthusiasm that I had for the place for my first six months and beat the other three people who were were competing for the same job yeah. as me for the job. Uh, to the point where I think none of them were even sad or upset that I was the one that was offered a job the year after and not them. So, um, yeah, I mean, it feels kind of, you know, I guess up myself to call myself to say that I know I'm a confident person, but I guess it's true. I don't the think end it's. I think it's 
part of being a confident person that you can say, <laughs> yes, I'm a confident person, you know? Yeah. I, I think it's a really good quality for, for people to have, you know, and, and not everybody has it. A lot of people strive towards it, so it's a really cool thing. I want to ask you one last question before we then wrap up. Um, can you please tell me what would your perfect pizza be? Perfect pizza? Yeah. Well, there's one that they make here which is pretty fucking great. Basically, they put pesto on a pizza and it is mm. the best thing I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> so, um, fucking love it. However, I make it at home now sometimes. I, it's, you know, you've got to have a lot of tomato paste. I love that stuff. I eat it with a spoon. But you mm. put that on, a little bit of cheese, then you put pesto all over it and then you've got capskin, onion, probably some bacon or salami depending on what you've got available put more cheese on it, maybe some chili flakes, and then I put parsley on it. Ugh. And that is probably my favourite thing ever. And cover that shit in parmesan cheese because parmesan oh, yes. is the best thing ever. And they give you sections here to put on your pizza and it's the best thing I've ever heard of and I think everywhere should do it. Brilliant. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show with me today, Helen. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to Loud and Seemingly Confident. Please subscribe, leave a review. <laughs> Five stars would be nice. Uh, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Loud and Seemingly Confident, or you can follow me at Chelsea J. Heaney. That's H-E-A-N-E-Y. Helen, do you have anything you want to plug? <laughs> uh, no, not really. I mean, you can follow me on Instagram if you want for all the wildlife pictures, which is mm-hmm. just Helen K. Young at and that's about it. But really, I don't mind. I'm sure you'll tag me when you post this. They can follow me that way if I they want to. Will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Bye-bye.